Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and uh, this week's conversation with Andrew Clark, which kind of broadly centres around the restaurant industry and um, issues of mental health, both um, you know positive and negative aspects of the restaurant industry, which which either promote or um, or sort of uh, put pressure on on mental health, which is quite interesting. Um, it, it's a lot more balanced than um, I anticipated. Um, so it's kind of an exploration of of that whole world of um, the restaurant industry, but it does it does kind of point into some speculation or or um, exploration of ways that the restaurant industry could go forward, you know, and and um, other things that could be happening through the through the industry. Um, it's provoked a few thoughts for me, or on the other hand made me think about how I could use this as an opportunity to articulate some thoughts I've been having for a, for a while um, and I'm going to use this podcast intro as uh, a space to explore some of that so the first thing is there's a few different uh, resources which relate to issues of mental health and and um, that's something I want to have more on on the podcast concerning um, and I've been saying that for a while. We, we've touched on the polyvagal theory a few times. I'll just I'll just mention very briefly what the uh, the core ideas of that are now. Again, the polyvagal theory is basically suggesting that we are evolved, and our whole kind of body and our sort of what what's described as our neurophysiology, you know, how our brain and our nervous system works, how our um, brain and body kind of talk to each other as it were is something that happens really well you know in other words we are well when we're in something called the social engagement mode that's a kind of uh, state of mind or, or a state of feeling where we feel very relaxed and comfortable with other people we basically feel safe and uh, what's known as bonding happens you know we form these emotional links with other people because we've dropped our guard and actually it turns out that in that space, we actually protect one another. We keep each other in a safe space. And we basically protect us, each other from the emotional danger of the other two states, which, which, which we can spend our time in. Um, and they're actually much earlier states we've um, evolved through. So the first one is like the lizard nervous system, which will just shut down completely in the face of extreme danger. And like a lizard will feign death. Um, and people who faint, people who end up um, pooing themselves because they're frightened, people who go into a catatonic state, that's all, that's all the shutdown mode happening. It's, as I say, in the face of extreme danger, the body just takes the best call it can and, and, and just approximates death. And basically your whole system slows down, so a bear hibernating in a cave is also in, in shutdown mode. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, depression is a bit like that. It's probably tapping into that, that ancient sort of neurophysiological circuit. But the other one, which we'd probably prefer not to be into very much, is, is fight or flight. And that's a response to non it's kind of to danger but not to the point where it's absolutely life-threatening and there you'd kind of you'd feel angry you'd feel afraid you'd feel anxious and um, I think it's probably true to say that most people spend a f very disproportionate amount of time in that fight or flight area now and it's basically because you perceive threat in the external world um, and unfortunately these days we manage to perceive a threat just in terms of worrying about whether we can pay our mortgage worrying about what people think of us and things like that, which 
in uh, ancient times when we were really firmly embedded in a village or a tribe that thing i was talking about earlier which is actually called co-regulation where we enable each other to feel safe all the time we are protecting ourselves from that danger um, and in fact the internal danger of being worried and frightened and, and angry all the time so when people are, are very relaxed with each other you're less likely to get angry you're less likely to feel afraid you're less likely to to uh, perceive a threat when it's not there and uh, actually you're much better able to deal with an actual threat and 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 think clearly because you can't really um think clearly when when you're in this fight or flight thing you can only you can all your blood goes out of the front of your brain and to your muscles and you can't even digest food properly so um basically it it kind of speaks to the fact that we would we would be far better off if we could somehow manage to uh, be in in this social engagement mode all the time but actually there's some really sort of clever tricks uh, nasty clever tricks which are, are kind of conning us out of what i would see as our kind of inheritance biologically to, to to live in this safe space this settled space where you feel warm and comfortable in your body and warm and comfortable with other people and and in in the landscape you know and one of those is uh, electronic devices because one of the things that social engagement does is it enables us to help each other feel safe by making eye contact and smiling and talking in a friendly voice where you know we are affected by the bodily presence of other people to feel safe and feel good and open up and then in return we smile and talk in a friendly way and make eye contact and help the other person feel safe so it's kind of going back and forth back and forth with people helping each other feel good and feel comfortable but if for example someone is smiling and speaking um and uh making eye contact looking at the other person but the other person just stares back blankly and doesn't reply that is actually something that would trigger the fight or flight response because that's the kind of behavior that someone that's aggressive or hostile would exhibit just to stare back blankly not reply not make friendly eye contact well guess what that's exactly what happens with social media and text messages and things like that we we say something and then um we don't get an immediate response and that breakdown in the uh, the two-way flow that immediate um reciprocity that immediate response um is actually very triggering um, and it means you're sitting there thinking why hasn't that person replied or will people like my post what impression is that given and then on the other hand when we stare at a screen actually what the body is doing is uh, is is it's looking at that screen as if it was a face it has a lot of the characteristics of a face um and yet the screen doesn't respond to us it doesn't it doesn't sort of smile and nod or make encouraging noises when uh when we're interacting with it as somebody does when we're speaking so the very thing of staring at a screen is also putting us in that flight flight or fight mode because we're not getting um, any response so that's all kind of uh aspects of modern life that that are um you know putting us in this very difficult position they're, they're compromising our social engagement mode um, and yet the social engagement mode is something which um, causes everything to work well you know our, our, our immune system works better when we're in social engagement mode um, and as I've already said we, we think better we're more creative we get more into what people have called the flow state um, of creativity and finding our particular qualities and, and skill sets and, and where we, we are absolutely at our best when we're in that social engagement mode. So the question is, as you'll see us exploring in the in the conversation, um, what other things which facilitate that in, in uh, restaurant kitchens and and um, and you could you know apply that or obviously to, to your own work context, which is 
where Andrew's work appears to be focused is on helping people um, maximize the work context to, to promote people's um, mental health. Uh, but there's, there's obviously one thing that we, we forgot to cover about kitchens, which is, which is the um, traditionally a lot of kitchens have been very uh, difficult places to work in because of the amount of um, sort of autocratic leadership that's gone on there with sort of male chefs shouting and things like that. So that's, that's something we didn't really touch on, but it's worth bearing in mind that that is obviously another aspect of, of the fight or flight mechanism kicking in. Very hard for people to be at their best when they're being um, shouted at or they're afraid of getting things wrong and so on. I wanted to just briefly touch on that because there's another, there's another um, resource which, by the way, we'll put something about the polyvagal theory again at the bottom of this podcast notes. But there's another, there's another whole area by a guy called Dan Siegel, what he calls the yes-no brain, which is basically, um, it's kind of another way of looking at fight or flight and social engagement. So fight or flight is where you um, respond by saying no to things in, in many different ways. So you could see somebody saying, well, don't do it like that. Or, well, just, I mean, you get the idea, just just a negative response. Whereas the yes brain is is where you, you're you accommodating and um, and affirming. And it's, there's a hilarious video, which I think we'll put at the bottom of this, um, the podcast notes, where he demonstrates that. So he, he, he essentially um, turns something on his head where, he's, where he starts out by being negative and then he turns it around to say exactly the same thing, but in a way that affirms where the other person is coming from. Well, I'll leave you to explore that, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing. And I'm, I'm finding, um, you know, some challenges in my home life at the moment, um, parenting and realizing that, that there's still quite a lot of autocratic stuff in, in how I'm behaving, especially towards my son. Um, and I've accessed some really good stuff that applies this to parenting. And so it's, um, it, it's, it's looking at how, if you, if you tell a child, don't do something, that is automatically it's just scrambling them because you, you push them into this no-brain state which where they're feeling fearful and on guard and judged and criticised. Whereas if, you, um, if you're wanting to influence them and, and get them to stop doing something, if you, if you say what you do want them to do, they feel partnered with, they feel supported and, and affirmed. And I, I find it incredible how I managed to get myself out of a tangle that I've got into with, with with my little boy by telling him keep telling him not to do things, and I'm finding that that uh, I can feel him relax, and I can just feel myself relaxing um, as I'm telling him what I do want him to do. So that's an example of yes, no, uh, yes and no brain, um, which is pretty interesting. So that's 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 some other kind of bits about mental health, which which uh, which have kind of come up. The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, yeah, I um, you know I used to be a punk when I was. Um, a, a teenager, a very young teenager, and uh, you know I was into all those bands, the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Clash and all of that. Um, all kind of quite edgy, all quite fight or flight actually, which is which is interesting. But um, but as a kind of reaction against sort of conformity and uh, sleepiness and and the sort of dullness of, of music at that time, with all the all the kind of synthesizer music and 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 uh, like basically rich kids making music and. It was a reaction against all of that. Well, Brian James, who was the guitarist of The Damned, has recently been given some Lifetime Award by a punk magazine uh, for, for, the, for the song he wrote called New Rose. Um, and that's a great song. I guess we'll put a link to that as well. Um, but the really interesting thing was he was interviewed and it seems like when you, when you don't really think about it that New Rose is a song, a love song. So the New Rose is, is, a, is a girl and 
he's in love with her and stuff. But it was amazing because he's, he says, Acid New Rose, um, and if you listen closely to the lyrics, you realise it can't be about a girl, is about the punk movement. About the energy and the excitement of, of and he says, uh, I've got a feeling inside of me kind of strange like a stormy sea. Uh, I don't know why, I don't know why. I guess these things have got to be. I've got a new rose, I've got a good. Guess I knew that I always would. And uh, he's talking about this movement that he's a part of, this this energetic movement with, with especially very young, a lot of, lot of kind of uh, people with a real kind of art sensibility suddenly putting that into uh, their creativity, into a medium of, of short, really punchy, aggressive songs uh, with, with, a, with a very new energy to it. And it made me think, well... For a start, people in this article were saying we need it. We need that kind of energy now in the music scene. I was, I was thinking, well, you know, we need that kind of energy now. Full stop. It made me think about cooking and and food and and the restaurant scene. And then I thought, well, you know, there is actually a huge potential, and lots of amazing things have come through in the restaurant scene. But there's a real problem, um, and that is how much the restaurant scene is um, dictated to by money. That's a real problem. You know, you've got. Uh, a client base which I know uh, everyone wants to go out and eat um, and most of us do every once in a while but the fact is there's a lot of people that are able to eat in restaurants all the time and these are people with uh, filthy amounts of money people with inherited money and people who have um, you know made it big in in business and I think uh, it's worth mentioning that behind every uh, great fortune there's a great crime now you know perhaps you have just fluffily done your organic eggs and made three billion pounds or something but on the whole, you're going to have had to walk over a lot of people to get to that point of having that great fortune. The aristocrats of this world were given that money by kings in centuries gone past and so on. You basically don't get that huge stack of cash in 99.9% of cases unless you've been mean, greedy, selfish and ambitious. So that's how people kind of own that money. And it means that if you think about uh, the restaurant industry as in any way challenging the way that we live in the 21st century, um, you're going to be speaking across the uh, vested interests of people who come and sit in, in restaurants all the time. So that's, that's immediately a challenge. And then obviously there's the, the high rents and high rates, that, the business rates that are being um, alluded to when, when I raised this slightly with with Andrew about how come restaurants aren't taking the opportunity to be as revolutionary as they could. So I think, you know, there is there is that challenge. And then the, the fact that you're working within this context, this capitalist context, which uh, in itself is, is just rotten to the rotten core, you know. Um, it's all about greed. It's all about ambition. It's all about not thinking about tomorrow, but we just get what we want today and we don't think about the consequences. And obviously climate change is the big thing that is that is uh, like the chickens coming home to roost for that because you can't avoid the consequences of climate change and and this this capitalist setup is, is it's almost like you you're walking down you're walking down um a road that you can't get out of you know there's walls either side you have to stay on this on this road but i just don't accept that personally i think you can scale the walls you know you can scale the walls and get to the kind of green countryside outside of this mainstream capitalist setup but the challenge for me is how can you work within an industry how can you work within a capitalist society and not basically be selling your soul or selling uh, certain bits of your anatomy you might say um, basically prostituting yourself how can you how can you manage not to be yourself driven basically by ambition and by a, uh, a concern that, well, I need to pay the mortgage and therefore I can't say that, I can't do that, or I've got to do these things because that's where the money is and so on. 
Um, but the fact is that, that that punk ethic that I'm talking about, that sort of revolutionary ethic, um, you know, Tom Waits said, some men will do it for diamonds, some men will do it for gold, wounded, but they just keep on climbing and they sleep by the side of the road. Well, what if we didn't do it for diamonds or gold? You know, what if we did it for actually really making things better? What if we did it for uh, just hitting that creative spot in ourselves and staying there? And to me, there is a way, as I say, to scale the wall to get out. And it's basically that you stop seeing what you do as, as, as a marketable commodity. You see something as having a value um, of its own, that you just want to do that thing purely in its own right. And that's the way that you, um, you scale the wall. You think, I don't care if I'm poor, I don't care if I'm hated, I am just gonna do what, um, what I have in, in my guts to do, regardless of the consequences. And you'll see, just check out history, because the great artists, the great writers, the great revolutionary people, the great people that have formed and, and, and provoked social change, they've been people that made that decision. They don't care what happens. They're gonna just uh, follow what's in their guts to do, regardless of what happens. I'll just say a little bit more about Andrew Clark before we introduce the conversation. So Andrew's someone I've known since um, 2005 or 2006, I'm not quite sure. Um, but he was working as head chef at the Swan at West Malling. And he's one of these people that just really embraced the wild food right from the beginning and would always be there in the kitchen trying to find a way to use any any new ingredient that we brought in. For example, you know, he, I remember him candying Alexander's and making all kinds of interesting drinks with the, thing, uh, the things we brought. And always just... It seemed to us and, and seems to me now, it was for the sheer love of the ingredient and the process. You know, there seems to be a lot of chefs nowadays who, if they if they use so much as a leaf of wild garlic or something, they immediately want to be uh, achieving, a, you know, a medal or, or a sort of record, public recognition for their being on the cutting edge of cuisine or something like that. In other words, always a view to the, uh, an eye on the public image implications of what they're doing. Was Andrew just did seem to be doing what he did just for the sheer love of it. So it was very exciting to work with him in those early days. And uh, I, I would say, you know, that's that's pretty much the, the, the mark of the man. You know, Andrew, Andrew just does things because um, his heart's in it. And obviously he's gone on to to uh, the new area of work that he's in now, having, having chef for a long time and been working with uh, St. Leonard's, where, where, which was the most recent chef um, project that he had. He's now full-time working to promote awareness of mental health through his um, pilot-like project, which is the main focus of this conversation today. So um, Andrew's taking that sort of heart and soul approach to things to just to get the word out that mental health is is something real that we shouldn't be ashamed of talking about okay so now let's go on with the conversation with andrew clark so how's it going um yeah everything's all right i've i've uh i kind of stopped cooking <laughs> which is um yeah i'm well out of my comfort zone at the moment um i left my restaurants back in September, or well, Brunswick House, I, I, I finished up with in May, and then St. Leonard's in September. I've been trying to buy it for a long time. And yeah, I know. It was just, I mean, you know, I think there's a point where it may have come off, but working with the people that owned it was becoming more and more difficult, and I don't necessarily think was doing my or anyone else working there, our reputation's any good. So uh, I decided to leave. <laughs> and uh, I, I put myself, immersed myself full-time into Pilot Light, 
so Doug Sanum and I started Pilot Light um, initially as a campaign to help uh, break the stigma around mental health uh, from within hospitality. We have now set up as a social good business uh, rather than a charity. Uh, we felt that being a charity was a little too restrictive and we want to be able to reinvest in ourselves and hopefully fund um, decent initiatives, well-being initiatives, uh, and hopefully build a network of um, you know people doing these around London and whatever cities we're in. Um, so there's always something interesting that people from hospitality can dip in and out of um, and hopefully promote better well-being. But Pilot Light really is about raising awareness and prevention. Um, we've been sharing stories through our website. Uh, we're building the tools and an app uh, that will come out hopefully sometime this year. Um, we create, we've been curating workshops and uh, doing a lot of uh, trade talks as well. Um, but I guess most importantly, there's a lot of um, good, fun cooking events um, where we can, you know, get a room of people together, a bunch of chefs, uh, tell our stories, cook some food and ultimately, you know, have a, a good time with it. There's a lot of media. Media are always quick to pick up on how bad things are in our industry, you know, whether it be bullying or uh, drugs, addiction, um, mental health and you know uh, the, the trunk system people not getting their tips um I, I just don't see them picking on other industries as much as they pick on ours so I, I i felt that it was important to kind of improve the image of our industry so um you know without without witch hunting hopefully we can police ourselves um and you know raise our standards raise our game I, you know i think it's always going to be a difficult industry to work in but it doesn't mean that we have to be assholes either um so hopefully in, improving the image of the industry will encourage a few more people into it and hopefully retain staff as well most important that we do that in a time when there are fewer people coming in i figured that if if i'm not going to open a restaurant immediately then i would just put all my attention into that get it off the ground for a year because we've been doing, I mean, we've been doing well with it, but I always think with, as more demand comes along, then we're always behind. We're always on the back foot. We went from just me and Doug uh, doing it, and then we got a small team together, mostly of volunteers, um, and we were, we had a couple of things in place, but then kind of got a bit side railed with um, some personal stuff. And I think it's because, you know, up and for the three or so years we've been doing this, um, we've kind of been digging in our own pockets and, um, you know, earning a lot of money for charities and putting, you know, putting it all that way. But we were really, we were struggling to fund it and also kind of pay our own, you know, bills. We, you know, it's a job for us. We're working on it six days a week. So we just had to say, look, we need to turn this into a business and a business that it can, you know, it can afford us. So we decided not to be a charity. We decided to be a social good business. And what we have done is uh, in the early days, we were working with a mental health advisor and going into businesses and getting them to change a few things to help them, you know, be more aware of um, the need for a, a better practice. And hopefully, you know, they can implement that with the teams and get a bit more longevity out of staff. So, you know, we're not looking at burnout all the time. Um, there are a lot of things we want to do with it. But the simple thing, it really is about raising awareness and it is really about, you know, putting some tools in place for the prevention. And if we, we uh, our single goal originally was to make, you know, break the stigma that's attached to talking about mental health. So 
mm. you know, there's a lot of people that are they're just afraid to talk about it. And and by using our own experiences and our own voices, hopefully it was something that, um, you know, other people could you'd find their own voice and start speaking up. Why we work with restaurants is because everyone's finding it harder and harder to find staff. There's more and more restaurants, there's fewer and fewer chefs. So it was like, okay, well, let's start looking after our own. I think that the industry, you know, I like working hard. I like doing a lot of hours personally, but there is an unrealistic amount as well. And that, that there's too many people that I've heard that, you know, they enjoy, enjoyed being a chef, but then when it's like the fifth or sixth double in a week or even two or three weeks without a day off, that's just not sustainable. And you're just, yeah, people do burn out. So we can have longevity with our staff if we just change a few things. And it wasn't that Pilot Light was set out to just tell people how to do stuff. We would make suggestions with alongside our mental health advisors. Mm. But we really need the industry to feed into this and tell us what the obstacles are and what's going to stop them implementing this and how we can shape it um, together. So... This is where we're at. We are, it's back to me and Doug again. We have partnered up with uh, one of the original founders of Movember, JC. And uh, now we have much better infrastructure. We have about access to 20 million pounds worth of research in this field. And, you know, we're creating all the tools to hopefully put online and through uh, workshops to be able to deliver um, a better package. Do you think that, that, that the, the restaurant industry as a whole is particularly, you know, puts people particularly susceptible to, to sort of mental health issues? I mean, you mentioned the long hours, but yeah. other, other things about the industry that, that really put people under a kind of pressure that, that, that makes them vulnerable. I mean, I, to be quite clear, I mean, I, I did it in an interview with Jay Rayner a few years ago, and um, his article was about, is hospitality bad for your mental health? And um, I just need to be clear and say that actually it helped my mental health. Um, you know, I was suicidal, and it was actually getting back on the stoves and enjoying my cooking again that brought me back and gave me some life. Um, but I do realise that not everyone feels the same about Everyone's different. We all feel different about mental um, hospitality and our own mental health. So mine helped me. There are people that uh, have bad mental health before coming into hospitality. Yeah. There are people that have decent mental health and hospitality affects their mental health. So we're, we all have different stories to tell. I just felt it was something that we should be a bit more open about. So there is no taboos. There are no hiding places. If we all talk about what's going on, we can manage each other better. We can manage ourselves better. We know what we need to be doing to, you know, if we've got, if we've got like a few doubles uh, in a row, we need to know how to prepare for that. So, like, you know, if a footballer is going to go out and play a game, he's going to make sure he's training well before that game. And any athlete that does, you know, the Olympics or any of these things, like the, the hours and the stresses and things that go into doing a service is, I, you know, I think it can be comparable to um, what athletes put themselves through. And yet we don't adopt the same strategies sometimes. We don't look after ourselves. You know, well-being hasn't really existed beforehand. So I changed a few things around in my life and 
you know, at 42 years old, I can hold a service down better than some of the young kids. Um, but it is just to do with lifestyle changes. And um, if we can just try and adopt that at a younger age, we'll have more longevity. And I'm not saying that people are in it for the forever, but they might not drop out as early either. Um, we'll drop out for those reasons. It's a bit more, more a kind of a positive choice rather than a, I have to get out because it's killing me something. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think the industry's changing anyway. I, I, I don't think that there is the 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 party aspect that it, that it used to be. There's definitely a lot more intellectuals in hospitality now than I remember like starting out, or maybe it's just uh, I was in the wrong places to start with, and that, that possibly is it. But, you know, we've been really super knowledgeable about the product and sourcing and the sustainability and, um, you know, regenerative farming. And we understand so much about that, and yet, you know, we don't really know enough about ourselves sometimes. So, um yeah, I just hope that all the time we're looking for sustainable products, we're trying to look for sustainable staff and sustainable chefs. One of the things that um, that I've always thought about kitchens, especially for, for young lads, is just going back to your um, sort of positive affirmation of of the restaurant industry as 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 a as a place that could support mental health rather than depreciate it. You know, young young guys with who are a bit sort of lost and and uh, don't know how to handle themselves very well. I've always thought that someone that's particularly off the rails should probably either join the army or go and work in a kitchen because yeah. they will have that kind of routine and structure. And, and in a kitchen, there's there's a kind of I mean I know not that much about either because I've never worked full time in a kitchen or joined the army, but I have sort of been an observer. Of, of of the kind of camaraderie and and the sort of group um, ethic that you have, everybody's got to pull together in order to get a job done, and so on. And I think for a young a young person that's a bit lost and off the rails, that's an incredibly positive environment to find it's, themselves in. I think yeah. this is where. See, I, I I thought about this, and maybe I, I don't know quite how to say it yet, but it's it, it's it's an idea that's been around my head, but. You know, people talk about the kind of the unsocial hours and, you know, I guess even myself, I, when I first got into the industry, there was an adjust. You have to make that adjustment. But maybe it's something that we're taught in society that, you know, it is long hours and it's um, antisocial and, and it's hard work. Whereas, like, um, I've, I kind of feel that it's not really hard work if you love what you're doing. It's not unsociable hours if you enjoy being there versus being out with your mates. So I just think that maybe, maybe society's isn't got a problem. being in with your mates isn't, well, isn't working in a restaurant where it's working well. That's being in with your mates, isn't well, it? Well, that's it. So it, I, to me, doing a Friday night service in a nice busy restaurant is like, I just feel that that's as social as it gets. Do you know what I mean? You're having a, it's like having a, you know, particularly at restaurants I've been fortunate enough to own or work in having an open kitchen is great because it's like you're inviting everyone into your home to have some food and hopefully have a good time. Nothing could be more social than that. Do you see what I mean? Um, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work out how to quantify this better or how to like, you know, say it better, but that's what I think. I, I just think that, you know, we're not really, we're not really teaching our, the new generation or anyone really to say look this is a great industry it's not as hard as people tell you it is 
it's hard, but it's it's no different to others. Uh, you you put into it, you get out what you put into it. The hours aren't unsociable if you see it as a, a you know a, a good fun thing to do. I don't know, so, something like that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I also make you write about the fact that you know kids that have had lack of discipline, you know, going into the army or going into a kitchen has brought that. So I've certainly had people that have you know kind of come from nothing come into the kitchen and then you know they, the, they've done so well and then now they've got something they've got a profession a profession that can take them around the world you know they can earn some good money um but you have to do that training that kind of jedi training you know you've got to go and finish it um before you can do these things and not try not to run before you can walk you know you know i mean having something positive about um you know restaurants as a place to be uh, a place to work i want to kind of see what you think about this as, as something that I increasingly see as being really negative um, and it is an increasingly strong aspect of it seems to me of, of the whole restaurant and that's like the Instagram culture and the um, whereas in the past you would have just been doing a job of work you know you'd have just been cooking meals for people that came in and that was it now the whole kind of PR and marketing side of things especially when people have got their eyes on the bright lights and are, are wanting to be the next this or the next that, you know, which I think is increasingly uh, something that is waved in front of people is that if you want to be really successful, that's what it looks like, you know, to get the accolades, to have your name go down in history, to have five cookbooks and a yeah. restaurant chain named after you and all that, as opposed to just, you know, your job is to cook a good meal and have satisfied customers that go home at the end of the evening which is much more like any other trade, you know, like yeah. like being a carpenter or a, or a, I don't know, a gardener or, you know, something that you do with your hands, that the, 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 um, the fruit of your labour is that pot that you've done if you're a potter, it is that piece yeah. of furniture, it's that meal. Now the fruit of your labour is some kind of big public image that you're supposed to be achieving. That's what I think is, I, is potentially I, I really toxic about the current environment. Well, you're right. And I think that plays into what I was saying, you know, just a short while ago, where it's just like, you know, you've got to finish your training as well and don't run before you can walk. Because I've had chefs in the last couple of years where, you know, they're talented, they're young, they can go places, but they want they want to do things too early. They don't want to just understand a little bit more about, you know, being a, a sous chef, about being a head chef. So you know, they go off to kind of make make a name for themselves early because I guess everyone's making a name for themselves these days. And it's like, you don't have to do that. You can just get under the skin of a good business, learn your craft, and then go and do it. And um, I think we should just slow down a little bit. The, the, the fame will come <laughs> if you ever need that. Do you know what I mean? It's nice to have a restaurant that has a good reputation. It's good to, you know, get the accolades for the good hard work you've done. Um, but people shouldn't be in a rush to do it either. Well, don't you think that, 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 I mean, there's a difference between reputation and, and fame. If you're, um, if you're hankering after that, and it seems to me there's a lot of role models, without wanting to call out anybody's name, but there's a lot of role models at the moment, people who've been highly successful at manipulating the public image in order to achieve those accolades. Whereas, you know, perhaps if they'd have... Uh, made the food the priority or made some of the sustainability bits that they tend to kind of display yeah. as part of seeking those accolades if they would actually concentrate <coughs> on really doing those things there might have been a bit of a different journey that they're on but 
I think my problem is that what's what's modelled now to young chefs is some people who are amazing chefs and that do tick some of the boxes around sustainability or whatever. But actually, when you really get down to it, what 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 has driven their career and and what they seem to be most skilled at is manipulating the PR and the marketing and and attracting those accolades. And unfortunately, that that means that that the the, the the young chef feels that that's what he or she has got to do. They've got to be highly skilled at doing that instead of just concentrating on the actual nuts and bolts of what it is you do. And I think that's such a subtle thing because you know you're there to cook. You're there to serve your customers. You're there to build those relationships with, with suppliers and ingredients and with the world at large with, with, with this more ecological view that we have now. But actually, what people are thinking about all the time is how how is this coming across? You know, am I managing to get people to see that this is what I'm doing? You see, and that's actually a totally different job, you know. Completely. To, 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 um, I, I, yeah, again, it's just... I think there's a good craft to be learned, learning a profession and just taking your time with it, not getting wrapped up with the bullshit that people think you need. It's like, you know, I was at a restaurant the other week and the chef, there's a talented chef and it's a new restaurant, but he's really pushing for a Michelin star. And it's just like, you know, great. I'm glad he is. Uh, <laughs> but you shouldn't need to chase it. If you're, do- if you're really good and true to what you're doing, it'll come. And I think that's it. Don't chase those those accolades. Just be really true to what you're doing. Believe in what you're doing. You'll have a much better time doing that as well, you know. Otherwise, you know, if you're just chasing one thing and you don't get it, you're going to be, you know, real disappointed every time it doesn't come through. But just enjoy what you're doing. Hopefully these things come. Not that I believe in stars, but, you know, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I think the job satisfaction is in is in the job itself, isn't it? And that's 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 the trouble is when you, you when you think that oh, I'd actually you know here I am doing what I'm doing, but this would be more satisfying if I had the three stars, if I was you know at a I don't know front page of the Observer Food Monthly or whatever it is. People think that that would make them feel good. <laughs> Accolades, listen, I, I definitely feel that when we're working hard and we're working to a goal of something, we do need a pat on the back, whether it be a, a good review, um, you know, some kind of accolade, whether it be a star or an, an inclusion in a, some magazine, or, I don't know, or guidebook or whatever. But if you've got a busy restaurant and you've got a busy restaurant seven days a week, that should be the biggest, you know, uh, key. That should be something that, you know, if you've got bums on seats, you've got a good team, Turnover's low. People enjoy coming there. People enjoy working there. That should be what people chase. I mean, that's me. That's what I would sooner have. It's, it's. I mean, to me, to be honest, it's the small prize, but it's the one that people would kind of forget. It's you, you can get wrapped up. I. Someone said it to me a long time ago. Michelin stars don't pay the bills, and you're absolutely right. I've seen a lot of Michelin star restaurants go out of business. But you remember when I was working at the Swan? Like that place was always yeah. busy. And I was just like, that's the kind of restaurant I want. Bums on seats all the time. I remember going out with you many, many years ago. It must have been like 12, 13 years ago or something. Maybe longer, but... Longer? Yeah, I it must be longer. It, it must be 15. But I remember like April being that, you know, all the shoots start coming up. And um, it was one of the most fun experiences. And uh, I'd like to take a team of people down to see you. Yeah, you'd be really welcome. I mean, you're right. April, April is... Is um I actually find that time of year like late April, early May. I actually find it overwhelming. I think so. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, you you recognise all the things, and and to a certain extent, you've you've worked with 
most of them. Yeah. But, but you realise that there's so much more that that you could do. And I mean, I don't know. That's thinking about it in one way, like in terms of like the potential stuff you could get busy with at that time of year. Yeah. But also, I find just the vibrancy of just seeing the hedgerows. They just it's almost like things are shouting at you. Do you know what I mean? It's like in the early spring, it's like there's a slight hum coming. Yeah. But, but by the time that period is coming, it's just everything is so vibrant. It's almost, if it's it was life, sound, it would be deafening. It's the life that we need. I mean, I understand so much more about seasons as, you know, time's gone on. But I'm not saying that in a way of like knowing what's around each season, but just <clears throat> the importance of spring. And, you know, we've been in a dead season for so long. Um and the life that comes through and the, the energy that you get and how the whole world just kind of comes a lot, you know, the, the yeah. northern hemisphere, that, that those that are affected by the seasons, that the way it comes alive. So um, I feel that <laughs> I need to see some daisies. I need to see some, I smell some nice fresh cut grass. I need, I need all this in my life at the moment because I think for me, I feel that winter has been going on a little too long. There's been a lot of, uh, a lot of those stresses, but it's, you know, an hour out in the in nature can uh, it's very very good for your mental health. I know that. I'm just realising at the moment that that just small things like just a little a little dose, as it were, a little a little um, morsel of something really nourishing and delicious. You know, I mean to to uh, to get out and just see plants, trees, or the yeah. landscape. I've been reading some science about it. The, the sort of proven, as you say, proven mental health benefits to exposure to green spaces and, and other living things. Um, but what what that stuff has made me realise is is that I don't account for um, myself. I take it for granted yeah. how it makes me feel to just stand there and gaze at, at, sure. at the horizon and see the trees against the sky or to just, as I'm doing now, look out the window and see you know, there's a big uh, wild rose growing above our hedge and you can see the, the branches sort of swaying slightly in the wind. And there's, there's, um, there's how that makes me feel. And, and, and I've just started noticing it far more yeah. since engaging with the I think, well, actually, that, that's a powerful effect it has on me. So, for example, you know, I'm, 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 I'm up in Suffolk at the moment yeah, yeah. and I was on the train on the way up here. And I had this tablet with me and was checking this and checking that. And I just put it down and thought, what, you know, what am I doing? Out of the window, the most beautiful Suffolk landscape. There were bits along the coast with estuaries. There were, there were bits with sort of old oaks. There were bits with sort of flooded meadows with, with, uh, with um, birds and so on there. And, yeah. and I realized that when I, when I look at that stuff, I feel like I'm being fed. I feel like I'm being nourished. And I think at some level... We are being, you know, um, but you can, you can, um, you can not do that. You know, you can actually walk, walk down the street and there are trees and plants and things you could be looking at. And you're so caught up in your thoughts yeah. that you, you don't, if, if you just stop for a minute, you find yourself getting really kind of grounded and, and sort of dialed down just as a result of a few moments. You know, It's, I mean, it's so important that we do that in the big cities as well. And I guess I, all the things that I've been trying to, I'm no, I'm not a mental health expert. You know, I'm an ambassador for talking about mental health. Um, but people do ask me for advice and I just, I can only ever give them 
what works for me. And I've given my kind of 10 commandments, which has now become 11. But one of them is, one of them is get out to nature. And, and, and it's, if you're in London, it's, it is hard, but there are parks and I'm, I'm literally just next to London Fields. So, you know, just even walking through there is enough to switch off and not look at the building, but look at the greenery, the little wild meadow that they've got, they, the trees that are, you know, hundreds of years old. So just to be able to do that and try and like, you know, not look in the periphery, but just the, what's right in front of you. And it's, um, it is good for, for a very brief moment. You don't feel like you're in London, which is very restorative. But I also say that if, you know, if you want a good relationship with London, you've got to get out every now and then, you know, if you want a good relationship with anyone, anything you've just got to leave it alone every now and then so you know taking a train down to Kent or Essex or Sussex or wherever just so important and I in trying to connect chefs with nature that little bit more I mean at least there's a there's a story there it's like go and visit a farm that do some sea fishing you know go and find a little cheese maker down in Kent or somewhere and spend a day you know even go and find out where people are making charcoal and you know wood and um foraging <laughs> there's, but there's so many things that you can do I, I just want to be able to I've, I've experienced these over the years of 23 years of cooking I've been very very fortunate to have my uh my journey enriched with people and suppliers and things that just made it you know really really good and unfortunately there's a lot of people in hospitality chefs that don't get that connection and um we hope we can kind of link people up um, and you know, bring something a bit more. Say, look, actually, look, there's so and so down here that wants to take some chefs out. We can say, okay, we'll we'll facilitate that. So, hopefully, it makes the industry for all the stresses and all the hardships that people talk about in it. Actually, there's some really really cool things that you're not going to get in any other industry that are unique to us as well. I just think that food is just a touchstone of life on so many levels. You know, the the, the, the relationship between people and other species, people in the landscape, people in the seasons, but also just the context of people sitting down to eat together, you know, yeah. um, all of this stuff is so life-giving. And then, and then the whole area of uh, health and nutrition, you know, that if we, if we have a proper relationship to food, then that is an amazing proper relationship to our own bodies. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm just trying to reel off a list of reasons why I think that, that food is, is is just like the key thing but you know the the fact that the restaurant industry is in a position to really just to just do such an amazing job um to pull all that together you know um i i just think um i mean i don't know how you feel but i'm i'm, I'm frustrated with it personally because i think there's um there is all that potential but yeah. at the moment it's still it's still just seeing like selling a um a kind of experience to people that that is a bit luxurious and, and i really think yeah. we've moved on from that but i think it is basically you're splashing out on the meal rather than rather than you know i've been spoiled a little bit where rather than seeing that those other things which i've just mentioned in a quick list there you know are actually far more fulfilling and satisfying you know if people feel that coming to that restaurant they are actually supporting a new way of people producing food from land they're actually supporting projects that are producing food in yeah. different ways in really innovative ways if they can see that they're actually nourishing their bodies and that there's something about the the context where they're gathering 
that, that, that people are coming together around those ideas, that they're supporting the restaurant that's doing it. Do you know, I think there's just so much more that could be done in terms of this being a really wholesome, good thing that people just, just go out feeling like, I don't know, that they've been to church or been to the mosque or, or, or been to some amazing poetry reading. Do you know what I mean? I just think, I just think people are, 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 um, are just, I feel that restaurateurs and, 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 and chefs are, are, are not seeing the, the wonderful opportunity that's in front of them to, yeah. to, to take people far deeper into, into things that people are wanting to go into. People want to go into nutrition. They want to go into connection with land. They want to go into deeper experience of community. They want to find ethical businesses that are like a, a tribe that they could belong to, you know. But, but I think at the moment, the restaurants are, are still in this very kind of standard business model. I, I, it's such a hard thing because, you know, so many businesses with with rising business rates and stuff like that, you know, everyone, they're, they're committed to paying back huge amounts of money. Um, it's harder for people to take risks or to do things that actually make a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I, I talk about when, when I used to do the stuff early on with foraging before it was, you know, a real thing um, and Noma had kind of made it a, a thing to do. But I remember trying to put a few things on at the Swan and I know we were coming into, we, we were coming into like the, the downturn. So like 2008 was fast approaching and, you know, there were a few people coming and it was like, all right, well, look, you, maybe we just got to slow down on a couple of the, the cutting edge things because you just kind of need to give people comfort food. And, and we made that and that was fine. But then when I got into London, I'm going into like that one restaurant that had a star and I remember him asking me to go and get some chestnuts out of the freezer. And I'm, for fuck's sake, you know, that was a byproduct of a failed mushroom trip in the autumn at, at, at the Swan. But here we are going into a, a Michelin kitchen and using kind of frozen products. And I think that's it. It's because they were more readily available to them. They were cheaper. And really, they could have told a much better story about, oh, actually, yeah. we forage these ourselves uh, on the weekend when we went out. But I d there are great stories we can tell in the industry. Some areas uh, lend themselves better to storytelling than others or, you know, we all have better angles that we can go on. Um, it is difficult for restaurants and chefs and such in London, but there are nicer stories to be told outside. It might, you might not always have the footfall or the, the busyness of London, but there's a lot of things that you can have um, that you can take advantage of. And I think that on that, I think the nutrition thing will be the next thing that we start looking at. And, you know, what I, I've, I've touched on it with a, a little pop-up thing that we did for David Lloyd a few weeks ago mm. but it was how um you know food is connected to your mental health how your gut is considered mm. to be your second brain and indeed some people think it's your first brain so um I've started looking at that for various projects it's you know it's, it's obviously part of what I do as uh, you know a mental health ambassador but um it could be the next story to tell I mean people are talking about veganisms everywhere now and getting a little bit boring if you ask me um but people might want to know a bit more about where things come from why perhaps wild food is more has you know much more nutritional value than even organic or and definitely um well, definitely does yeah i mean the, the things we've selectively bred nutrition out of most of the farm stuff yeah. there's a few exceptions but on the whole we've we've ended up with something that is less powerful and good for your body um 
Yeah. Well, I thought I liked it. You know, the, the, remember we used to find the the wild carrots, and they yeah. must have been about that big. But they smelt they, they smelt more carroty than a fucking sack of them, <laughs> which yeah. so, you know, and and probably as a nutritionist as a um, uh, a sack of carrots. And then well, you realise actually that's how hunter gatherers would have been, you know, just little bits, a berry here, something like that. Your body digests it, it takes what it needs. Uh, it's little and often, and we never had the three course meal. <laughs> no, no, no. People were sort of constantly grazing, but but they would have they would have they would have picked out when they they got some meat, you know. Yeah. If you if you, uh, you got yourself a buffalo, you would eat until your belly just couldn't take any more. And... Yeah, sure. So those things did happen. But yeah, no, it's funny you should mention the wild carrot, though. Because, uh, that, is, that is actually, in one sense, a counterexample. I mean, I think like, it's got aromatics and and it's much more intense in 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 uh, in most ways than the uh, cultivated carrot. But actually, the, the colours in the uh, in the uh, cultivated carrot make it more nutritious than the wild one. And that's the same as beetroot. Uh, um, and whether it's purple carrots or, or orange carrots, those are, um, I believe they're anthocyanins in the carrots, yeah. which are really powerful antioxidants. And we have selectively bred those in. But that's like an artifact, really. We, 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 yeah, yeah. we like the colours and we bred the colours in, not realising that the colours were, were actually compounds that were right, good okay. for your health. Yeah. Uh, so it's a funny little counterexample there. But um, but on the whole, yeah, the wild the wild food thing, I think, is yet to really make it's it, it's so funny and i suppose here's the thing right and this is this is this is me uh being a bit controversial but yeah. i do actually like being a bit controversial but um <laughs> uh we're in the same club there mate <laughs> okay so here's the thing i've listened for years to chefs saying it's all about flavor yeah yeah i'm gonna totally contradict that i don't think it's all about flavor so if, if we're going to say flavor, I'm going to put that about number four or number five or maybe further down. I'm going to say it's all about relationship. So with, with, the, with, the, with the foods that we eat, I mean food, yeah? So, I mean, someone's free to say that their restaurant is all about flavor. That's up to them. But I'm saying food, yeah. it's not all about flavor. Food is primarily about relationships because what you eat uh, creates or, or displays really a whole bunch of relationships between you and the world at large. You know, do you eat factory farm pork? Yeah. You know, do you do you eat uh, soil that's come from the Amazon? Do you th th you could start there, and then once you get right down into the uh, so there you are relationships, and then and then food is about nutrition and nurturance. <coughs> we can eat that's so that we can go, wow, that's an amazing flavor. You eat yeah. so you can fucking stay alive. But that's Tell me it's all about flavor, you know. But it's the miseducation. <laughs> flavor is really important. But it's, it's the, it's yeah, the miseducation on. that people have had that we, we as society believe that you know we haven't had the new uh, any anything nutritionist. Uh, uh, we haven't had what we need until we're full up, kind of. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, yeah, one blueberry every hour all day doesn't look like a big meal on a plate if you put it all together. But that's probably got all the nutritional content that you need. And more, do you know what I mean? But we we've just been kind of educated to have, to want to be full up. Do you know what I mean? To be satisfied. And I think you know, no one wants a sad bowl of food. No one wants something that doesn't. I'd say the flavour thing that isn't. Maybe it is important in terms of 
It's just saying it's not first. That's no, what I'm no, saying. Absolutely. But it's the one that's kind of easily quantifiable for most people. Do you know what I mean? And you could argue as well that when you think about flavour, where does it come from? Why do we want flavour? I guess, you know, in hunter-gatherer times, the wild foods were packed with flavour, actually. Do you know what I mean? So if yeah. so, maybe for, for our instincts, it was like if it had flavour back then, then it was probably good for us, whereas something that didn't have flavour probably wasn't. Maybe that's where it's come from as a, um, you know, why, why it's ingrained in us that we want to eat something delicious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm, I'm all for it being delicious. And I think there's a lot about the deliciousness, which is related to these other things. It's just I, I think the mistake is to start there, you know, like because um, for a start, the the perception of deliciousness is uh, is a social construct to a certain extent you know yeah that's what i guess what i'm saying yeah. a lot of people they won't eat stuff just because they haven't been exposed to it and then um like bitterness for example if if yeah. uh, if, if you turn the <laughs> clock back people's tolerance and acceptance and in, in in fact actual liking of bitterness would have been far more than it is now whereas most yeah. most uh, most and that's i think has been an obstacle a lot of people are not really engaging with still a lot of the wild ingredients because they're bitter. You know, I mean, I've been that one chef that, that said he didn't like bitter stuff. And then, then I finally had um, one of those, uh, one of the chicory like things, I forget, chicorium or something. He had that on the menu because it's a known Italian ingredient. He thought, well, I can, I can use that. But he, he said he didn't like bitter stuff. Um, and, and so, you know, I think our perception of, of deliciousness um, at the moment is is dictated by often quite superficial things whereas what you find is if you eat foods all the time and you start experiencing the health benefits of them all of a sudden think things delicious that in six months time that you 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 would have found challenging or unpleasant now uh, so it's it's like and i think the opportunity that, that restaurants have is that people these days do expect a certain element of being challenged when they come out to eat so you could you could do that especially if you told the story yeah. around things and say well you know you're going to find this a little bit edgy but go for it because this is the reason why yeah, this yeah. is being served up or whatever well it's i mean you know there's there's st still a lot of fans of things you can see people cut they go from kind of a very bland palette to quite exciting when they start exploring these things and i understand like we're all different so we all kind of you know hang on to different like flavors some people like bitterness but then someone might say actually i like it sour i like it very spicy do you know mm. you know i like exploring that with friends that have been less adventurous and um you know, partners and stuff so it's always interesting to get people on side with that we know it can happen but you know things like the industrialized food system particularly in the uk and the us where our heritage of food has not been great and mm. We haven't had like, I think Britain was before the wars and stuff, but, you know, we certainly had a lot of spices in the country from, you know, hundreds of years of trading with other countries. So it's been good there. But the industrial food system has made everything bland and just like very sugary or very kind of you know, just, I guess it's just affected people's taste buds. So therefore, you know, when they do have something bitter or tangy and just... If it's a slightly overpowering, they don't like it. It's not what they're used to. And we need to kind of reclaim that back. We need to reclaim our taste buds, right? Yeah, and I think that this is why I'm saying, I think that, the, the, you know, if, if, you're, 
if you're a food industry professional, I mean, I, this, this cracked me up when I first realized that, you know, like that, that basically, um, Andrew, and this is this is kind of cheeky addressed to uh, a bloke in a quite male dominated industry. Yeah. But, you know, restaurants are basically being mother when it comes down to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, who, who's whose role is it to nurture and feed the family? You know, it's it's mother. And, yeah, and so this 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 role that anybody that works in food that you have you you've basically got this 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 responsibility and this this job description it's called nurturing you know you're yeah. here to you're here to nurture and so i think uh you know any any wise uh, and good um mother is is going to find ways to get her kids to eat their vegetables yeah. you know? <laughs> I, yeah. I totally I, I think it's a good analogy it's um it's a responsibility and something that's made me over the years not want to cook for ego because I need my ego rubbed and look how great I am. But I, I mean, I'm not even a good chef. I just use really good produce and that's where it comes from. But I, and I wouldn't be that person without that produce. Do you see what I mean? I wouldn't be a, as good a chef as I am. But I like educating people. I like, you know, getting a reaction. I mean, you know, for someone to come into my restaurants and just go, oh, yeah, that was a pleasant meal. Come on, man. Pleasant. Do you know what I mean? I'd sooner you fucking hate it. Because at least it's an extreme. You either love it or you hate it. Um, yeah. And what's nice about you know doing small sharing plates or big sharing plates or whatever is that you get to try all different things. And amongst your group, you might have different favourites. So if that one doesn't work for you, maybe these do. And I think that's the nice thing about dining together, trying things. Throw that wild card in because like you know, maybe I'm not going to like it, but I want to try it. But this guy's definitely going to clean it up. Do you know what I mean? I love doing that when when I'm out eating with people. It's just like, oh shit, let's let's try some ducks assholes and see if they're any good. You wouldn't do that on your own because you don't want to waste your lunch. But it's it's really nice to be able to um, throw something like that in. And then hey, and you know what? We've tried it and it's actually delicious. So now I'm going to order it all the time. So it is that little education. We can educate ourselves, but we as a chef, I think it's a great responsibility to try and um, subtly educate people without being, you know over the top of that it's also there's there's a challenge involved there which which is which is perhaps it's like the extreme sports of eating you know yeah. if, if you lay out those things which as you say you might not try on your own you're not going to go out and eat on your own and eat something that extreme yeah. but together you're going to egg each other on and um and you know it's i suppose that that brings it on for me to to kind of say everything we've been saying already but just in a slightly different way that yeah that um you know, the chef's job is also to uh, to weave culture, you know, to create culture or to or to shift and change culture. And yeah. I think that's pretty exciting. You know, the way that, uh, that people at a certain time in history and in certain places eat is a big part of, of human culture. And, and yeah. you guys, you know, are there like with a screwdriver, just sort of tweaking things and yeah. adjusting things and, and steering things in different directions. That's a hell of a responsibility, actually, um, well, I think it's and good. also pretty exciting. You know. I think, you know, you definitely need people to pioneer the way on those things. Um, I guess everyone's conscious at the moment, whether they're paying lip service to it or just, you know, they do genuinely have um, some good in their heart to, to want to, um, you know, be more sustainable and, you know, be as zero waste as possible. It's funny that we have to make such a point about this because 
so many of these things, you know, with rising business rates and how how expensive it is to have a restaurant, a lot of these things should have been common sense in the first place. But now we're going down the route of actually saying, no, we don't, we need to do it for the environment as well. This is very good. And I love the fact that people like Doug McMaster at Silo really leading the way for, for that. It's a, you know, it really is a blueprint for the way a lot of restaurants should go. Um, but then what's next after that? What do we do? And I, th I think it needs to have it. Movements and uh, our education that we, you know, we should do as uh, an industry. We need someone to say, okay, what's next? This is really important. Let's start looking at this. And then for for them to start making the, um, because it will always be someone that takes the risk to say, actually, we're going to try and work this and see if that works. Not all businesses would. Most of them would fall flat on their asses, I'm sure. But I'm glad that certain that those pioneers exist. They're the, they're the real heroes of our industry, I think. I wonder if it wouldn't be good to, because um, <laughs> I don't really know, Andrew, we've, we've not, we we kind of fell out of touch for a while, haven't we? And yeah. I know you you you've got this thing that you're doing now that very much comes out of personal experience. Yeah. But I haven't actually heard you tell that story. Oh, um, yeah. In fact, I missed you on it a, a, a few months ago. I was somewhere where you were doing that, but I was busy oh. running a stand. So. Well, look, yeah, um, I'll tell it. Uh, 2015, I was having a really really shitty year um, for various reasons. Both, I wasn't in the best job. Uh, a job that was just a bit, I don't know why I did it. I think I did it just to chase the money and I thought I'd be all right for a year of doing it. But it was just becoming a bit, <coughs> not what I wanted, not what I'm used to, not what I enjoy. Um, and then there was a few things going on in my personal life and um, it all kind of came to a bit of a head later on that year. And I was in a relationship that when that kind of fell apart, that I think that was the last bit for me. And it was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, so I found myself, ironically, I'd just signed over to, you know, partner up with Jackson at uh, Brunswick House. So there was, you know, I knew that 2016, the beginning of that, I was going to be in cooking. And I guess that was something, I'm glad I had that because it gave me a reason to get out of bed. But I was, mm. um, I was hit with depression. I was, you know, it just fucking hit me. All, all these things had kind of come at once. And I was suicidal. I mean, you know, I wasn't in a good place. I'd swept a lot of things under the carpet over the years that I never dealt with. And I never thought it was important to. But actually, they, you know, it came back to bite me. So, yeah, 2015, this happened at the end of the year. And then 2016, like I took over Brunswick, I was cooking and just turning up to work. Uh, I've had a lot of support from friends, people I was working with, family, you know, everyone just checking in to make sure that everything was all right. And I was, I, I put a lot of things in place. Like, you know, I gave up drinking and partying and going out for a good six months while I kind of, you know, dealt with the problem, uh, I changed my diet. I mean, I couldn't eat for many weeks. I was just eating a, a, a golf ball size amount of food every day, um, kind of running on empty. I mean, I'd lost a lot of weight. I was not looking great, but um, I, I did start eating, you know, more plant-based back then. And I'd always exercised anyway. There was, a, there was a handful of things that I just started doing and it actually 
it got me better. And we started getting good reviews in at Brunswick. And then I started falling back in love with my food and my cooking and stuff. So that's a very short version. But basically, that you know, I went through something and, and it took a few months to recover. But I fast-tracked that by putting things in place. Where Pilot Light starts is later on that year um, for World Mental Health Day. Uh, I just wanted to put a post up on Instagram and say, look, you know, I believe in this now. Uh coming from experience that, um, you know, I didn't believe in depression till I had it. It's real. Um, I got through it. I'm a lucky one. But whatever I can do to help anyone else, you know, just don't suffer in silence. And then I kind of put my phone down. I went to bed and thought nothing more of it. <laughs> and the next day, like, you know, I, I had like messages, emails, missed calls, opened the app up and there's like, you know, messages there's lots of likes there's lots of comments and really what people were saying is that you, you've said something we can't say and I, the thing mm. that affected me the most about it is that there's so many friends people colleagues that I know within hospitality and and beyond but that have gone through their own thing and I never knew about it and that just proves that we do suffer in silence we don't talk about it we don't we're not open I'm I talk too much in terms of I probably say more than I ever need to say, um, but I'm open. I, you know, I don't see oh, that's that's a character trait. I'm all right with that. So I guess me telling my story as personal as it is, it wasn't a problem for me. But if I can use my experience as a big guy and someone that, you know, got through it as dark as it was, if I can help other people tell their story, then that's what I'm going to do. And um, so I just decided that I would set something up. I didn't know what. Everyone was saying we need to do something. So I was like, well, okay, we'll do something. And that was 2016. So we're now in our fourth year. We still don't know what the fuck we're doing. Um, but we have been on a journey with, uh, I met up with a guy called Doug Sanham, who's another Kent boy. And he, um, he was on his own journey. He'd been talking with a lot of charities, getting the door slammed in his face. So it was like, okay, well, let's put our resources together and our ideas together and, um, Let's see where we can take this. I guess going back to what I'd said earlier, the output was underwhelming the the, the, the demand. And we hmm. we were doing this on our days off. Not that there was many, and I've opened restaurants in that time and you know had a lot of jobs and things on. So we weren't really getting too far, but we were determined to do stuff. And and I think that's why we had to settle on the fact that we are really about awareness. Every time we go and do a talk or we go and do a workshop or we turn up to something, hopefully that's significant and that's helping other people go and see a GP, go and talk to one of their friends some family. Do you know what I mean? So even though, you know, I, I kind of was beating myself up that we weren't doing enough. I, I didn't realise we was doing a lot anyway. And, you know, the more people that were getting in touch saying thank you for talking about this. That's all I wanted to do, really, is I just wanted people talking about it. So I'm not going to keep quiet until everyone is. But I'm glad to see that people are really responding well to it now. That's fantastic. Because, I mean, it is, it is unfortunately, being a very male industry, and, and we guys are, are pretty terrible at, at um, letting people know when we need help. And, and Absolutely. I mean, I just, I just remember I was going to say something earlier when we were talking about the, the winter and so on. I think one of the things about connecting to seasons Andrew is yeah. is that it does help kind of make sense of our own experience our own inner experience you know? 
because yeah. um like the, the the way you were describing winter and you know i'm very conscious of it you know that a lot of a lot of bare trees with no growth it, it all looks kind of dead even though you you know in your heart it's not but but there's no visible signs of life and you know i think i think when we when we connect with with uh, the natural world and go through the seasons um sort of conscious of of that, that that is part of the ebb and flow you know i'm not saying that depression is like an automatically integral part to life but the fact that we all do go through sadness we all do yeah. go through sorrow and suffering and, and trauma and pain and you know that is actually inevitably part of life yeah um and then you can sort of see that spring come and see like right now we've got the white blossom coming out we've just had the cherry cherry plum yeah. and and that's beginning to fade and now we've got um blackthorn or the slow you know the blossoms coming oh. through and i always see you know and i try and tell my kids about it say look this is this is always a sign of hope you know yeah. we go through the darkness we go through the sorrow but but we need to remind ourselves last year the blossom came out after this it yeah. will come out again and, exactly, exactly. and so we kind of you know we 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 know that there's there's sort of hope at the end because we we see that played out in the natural world you know well i felt that it was important in using my i would never want to go through what i went through again but I'm glad I did. I've become a stronger person. I understand more about myself, about life and I, things I don't take for granted. But I'm still on a journey and I love, you know, talking and I guess understanding a bit more about what maybe our ancestors knew that we don't know today. The things that, have, you know, we were so much more in touch with nature. And I believe now all the answers are in nature somewhere. <laughs> and you're right. Absolutely. Just understanding the way the seasons come and go and you... You can say that like, you know, there's always you know, there's always another day. There's always going to be another day to start again. Um, and the sun's going to come out and there's been leaves on the trees. And, yeah, we, we, we are human beings. We can get sad and upset. That's fine. But maybe we need to just start. <coughs> this is one of the things I'm really trying to do is that when we do look after ourselves and when we are stronger of mind, I say, look, if you want a good, you know, a healthy body, you go to the gym. If you want a healthy mind, you've got to get that exercise. So you just get to the point where shit's going to get thrown at you all the time. But if you deal with it in a positive light versus a negative light, it's going to be fine. You know what I mean? So it's just getting people understanding more about positivity and applying that to your life. And that happens in nature as well. You know, we can feel the positive effect that nature has on us. When spring comes around, it's just like, you know, you're starting again. There's a new lease of life. You see all the, as we're saying, the shoots coming up. That's it. It's life again. It's another cycle. It's, for me, it's like, let's start this year again. If I've had a shit year before or it didn't end well or whatever it is, that life that comes through, it's okay. And now I've got another chance. The fact that I'm here today means I've got another chance. Yeah, because all the shit from the previous year, that's like the leaves falling from the trees and they rot down into the ground <coughs> and then they get repurposed. There's... Yeah. This year's leave. So, yeah, we can just let it all go. We can just yeah, those exactly. Mistakes. And if we understand that cycle and why it's important for that to happen as well. We can't yeah. just have the good times. We have to have the bad times in order to kind of, you know, as I say, the, the perfect example, the leaves coming down and then that's all kind of mulch and, um, you know, manure for things arising. So out of death comes life, right? I think it's great. And, and, and you know, you would sound like the nature's nature's the cure for everything. I think I think the bit of nature that we forget is that 
you and I have these wonderful bodies, you know, yeah. these extraordinary bodies, which are they're still totally wild. You know, I mean, we might eat a bit too much industrial food, but basically the chemistry, the physiology, the DNA of your body is wild. You're not yep. domesticated. You, you are a wild thing. And your body knows what to do. That's the beauty of it. So yeah. it's, it's just like for me, like having to read that piece of research to, to, to point out to me how good I feel when I stand there and look at a tree. You know, I feel I feel a bit of a chump, you know, that, that it has actually made me appreciate that more just to read some research in an academic journal, you know. But yeah. nevertheless, you know, I stand there thinking, well, hey, hang on a minute. This is like a jigsaw puzzle. I'm yeah. one bit. That tree and the, the rest of the outdoor environment is another bit. And when the two come together, it's like hand in glove. Yeah, this yeah, works, yeah. you know, my body's flourishing now, you know, because I'm a part of this and it feels good. But, you know, we just need to remember that stuff and, and notice what makes us. I guess, I'm, you know, I, I feel very foolish because like I'm I'm 52 and, and, and I feel I'm only just beginning to realize at this late point in life, you know, to notice when when I feel good, you know, yeah. and notice when I feel bad, you know, like step away from that. That's not making you feel good. Just leave. Get up and leave or don't do that or don't eat that or. Don't have this kind of conversation, you know, just all the things that 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 that, that, that make me feel good. Do more of that, you know. Yeah. And, and that's actually that's actually wild nature. I think, you know, you know, your body's able to feed back to you. Some of that stuff comes from the gut, actually, what you're referring to earlier. Yeah. They're like gut feelings that tell you, hey, oh. you know, this is not very good. Just give it a miss. You know, but we don't listen to that. So we carry on doing something that's well, not making us feel good. Things, yeah. there? I mean, there's TV, there's advertising, there's newspapers, there's. There's so much about life that keeps us distracted from, you know, our spiritual beings and these things that like, you know, the gut instincts, the things that were actually relied upon for tens of thousands of years. Do you know what I mean? We use them, but now they're not part of us. We, You know, our diet dumbs us down. And and um, I guess it's again, I don't know. I still don't know enough about it, but I, I'm, you know, I believe in energy. I believe in, you know. The electrical charge that uh, humans have and all living things have. And as you said, when you connect it together, how powerful that actually is. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, unfortunately, life, I think, is trying to take, tear us away from that somehow. Well, there are certainly a lot of forces at work, but they're mostly, uh, yeah, they're mostly just electronic distractions. I find most yeah, of it them. is. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you say about this, this, you said the word spiritual and then the word um gut right next next to each other and, and and i think that's one of the things like i think people are becoming more open to to spirituality these days but yeah. the older i get the more i realize that spirituality is to do with 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 matter you know it's to yeah. do with the material world it's, to, it's so it's like you, you're kind of taught that those two things are opposite but i find now that my spiritual experiences are when i really am, am settled down in my body or when yeah. i'm really kind of got switched on to what's going on in the physical environment it's yeah. weird you know that that is spirituality to just be present and uh, yeah be present yeah. It's, so, it's so important isn't it well well we've chewed some fat there andrew um, we have torn off a few subjects right <laughs> love to see if there's anything we can feed into what you're doing around mental yeah. health and that because okay. uh, you know i do think that the, the people coming out and foraging I, i'm trying to do more I say try. I am doing more when 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 people come out foraging to to not just give them a bunch of facts about the plants, but to yeah. to sort of edge them into a different space. You know that this is a yeah. way of being in a a much more grounded space and yeah. and uh, and you know a more healthy space. So 
Yeah. Well, I think it's it's important. I mean, we've covered it in various ways, but I mean, you could look at how, firstly, you explore the importance of wild food and the nutritional value it has, but then also what nutritional value has to the brain. Yeah. And the overall mental health, but also, you know, so there's that bit covered. And then there's the part of just being out in nature and why it's so kind of grounding and energizing just to be away from, you know, the, the 4G or 5G fucking signals and stuff that you get in London. And you know what I mean? It's just get yourself out in nature and let the, you know, the, the trees and the, the grass kind of, you know, put its own energy on you. And gather you in. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I'm another thing that's really dawned on me uh, last couple of years is that you know this when we're talking about being out in the forest and that it is a kind of community. You know, but it's a, it's broader than the human community. That that like we are actually part of all of these systems of life. You know, yeah. and that somehow there is there is like we are. I I kind of got this feeling, and it sounds a bit wacky, but I just do have a feeling that like the 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 ecology of places is is trying to gather us back in like you know like we've wandered off and and um and yet there's a place for us as part of that community well it is a warm hug isn't it it does feel it like is a warm hug. I love it. <laughs> it's an old yeah. friend just saying where have you been oh <laughs> uh, well i'm glad that it doesn't sound too out there yeah because that's exactly how it seems to me if it, it feels like a warm hug yeah yeah i you yeah. know it doesn't sound out there it's just we have to we have to rethink a few things. I think we've been programmed a lot the other way. And um, I know how it, it makes me feel and how much better I am for being out in nature. So there, there has to be something in it. You can overthink it or you can just go with it and use that gut instinct and say, you know what? It feels right out here. It feels nice. And just enjoy yeah. it. All right, mate. Well, smash right. it to talk to you. Catch you soon then, Miles. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's World Wild Podcast. And as ever, I encourage you to, if you came to this by other means, to go to the Forager website, www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast. I'll just click the podcast link there. Uh, there's also courses advertised on our website if you want to come and learn some foraging with us or do my online course, which is advertised there. Um, there's also blogs and reading material and so on and also you can get in touch with us by that means we're still working on the uh, worldwide podcast website which will be a better way of, of um, creating you know ways to communicate and get in touch with us and we should have some kind of uh, place there to for people to post comments and so on and for now i'd just like to uh, allude to the fact that in england the spring is just beginning to break I already mentioned last week, I think the, the, and in this week's podcast, the slow blossom coming out, which is the sign of the, the land awakening. Also, the birch sap is beginning to rise. Um, and, you know, I encourage you to get out there and, and, uh, and tap some birch because uh, you can drink the water that the trees are bringing up to swell their buds. You can drink that water. Um, it's, it's got interesting sugars like xylitol and uh, there's a thing called betulin which is an anti-cancer compound there's there's a little bit of uh, sugar there which you can also boil the sap down and, and and make birch syrup out of but basically you know i i see drinking birch sap as a way of communing with the with the with the springtime with the land awakening you're participating in that drawing up from the earth the stuff that is soaked deep down into the earth the water and so on which is facilitating the uh, the spring emergence of leaves and just the start of the whole life cycle again. Um, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's like a kind of um, uh, 
a sacred rites of you know cheerful hopeful um it's it's all okay it's all beginning again in the spring um and what what i do with my kids is we go and we go and um tap a birch tree it's basically a matter of drilling a hole in the tree and uh somehow arranging uh tubing coming out of the hole you've drilled and into a into a bucket and then you come back the next day uh, but what I like to do, I take a ladle and I go out there with the kids and, and we just basically cup our hands and pour some, some of the sap into our hands and we just drink out of our hands and and it's just a bit of a magic moment when that happens every year. Okay, well, that's it for this week's World Wild podcast. Is she really going out with him? Somebody this great 